Vigiagatti is Twitter's legal, public policy, and trust and safety lead. More importantly, she's one of the closest advisors to Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey and is even called the Jack Whisperer. Vigia is very smart, very plugged in, and very influential at one of the internet's most influential platforms. In our conversation, I ask her why majorities on both sides of the political spectrum believe Twitter censors political speech that the company disagrees with. She also gives her perspectives on what the political right gets wrong about Twitter. We delve into the idea of word violence and where Twitter draws the line between open debate and their idea of user safety. And we also talk about content moderation, disinformation, China, and a number of other topics. For anyone thinking about social media platforms and their influence in modern society, this interview has a lot to offer, and I hope you enjoy it. Vijay, thank you for coming on and having this conversation with me. It's a real pleasure. Been looking forward to it for quite some time. Thank you, Colin. I'm really happy to be here. It would be helpful, I think, for most listeners just to hear a little bit about yourself, particularly, you know, hey, where did you grow up? Where are you from? How? Did, why did you go into law? And then how did you end up at Twitter? Sure. Um, well, I am um, a first-generation immigrant. My parents uh, and I came to this country back in the 1970s. I came when I was about three years old. I grew up in Texas and New Jersey um, and uh, really went to law school because I, I wanted to help people. Um, certainly my immigrant experience played into that, um, but also just, um, you know, being a woman from a multicultural family and um, just all of the power dynamics that go into um, how people are treated in, in different places in the world. And I felt like going to law school would really give me a, an ability to help protect people. And um, that's that's kind of what's you know driven my career in many ways. Um, I'm a technology lawyer by training. I immediately left law school at NYU and moved to Silicon Valley. I wanted to work with entrepreneurs uh, because I felt they were disrupting traditional power structures. They were um, you know challenging industries, and they were all young people who were trying to make the world um, you know better, faster, and more accessible. And that's what drew me to Twitter in many ways. And so I've been at Twitter for about 10 years. I lead the legal trust and safety and uh, policy teams. And we you know, do a variety of things from protecting Twitter and the integrity of how we operate around the world, but also protecting the people that use the service through our policies and engaging with civil societies and governments around the world. Great. And we're going to talk about, I think, all of those things, which is seems like we got the right person. So that's great. Um, real quick, just setting the scene, uh, how many users on Twitter right now and what portion of that is inside the United States and what portion is outside the United States? Um, I would get you the exact number, but it's over 100 million daily active users around the world. Okay. So, I mean, when we talk about 100 million daily active users, we're talking about a platform that is clearly influential, clearly helping to shape uh, public awareness, public, public narratives, all of the above, right? Absolutely. I mean, we're a very unique platform in, in many ways because, well, we're a public platform. There aren't many uh, that are public. And so that presents, I think, a unique set of challenges and opportunities as well, because we have this very open approach to sharing information. And, you know, one thing that people often forget about us is that we're largely an international and global platform. Um, we most the vast majority of our users are outside of the United States. And we try to think of ourselves in that context of global frameworks. Mm -hmm. All right. So that that's a great lead into the kind of big question I wanted to kind of sort off with. It's going to seem a little esoteric, but I think it'll set the stage for everything else. What, as you would describe it, is Twitter's 
purpose? Like, what is the company trying to do? Is it is it simply trying to be, you know, a profitable business, or is there some larger aspect that the company wants to accomplish? Yeah, our our mission um, is very clear, and we, we're very clear about it internally, and we could probably do a better job of it um, of articulating externally. But it's to serve the public conversation. Uh, we want to be the conversation layer of the internet. We want to give people an opportunity to speak in, about things that they care about and find out information about things that they care about. And that is going to run the gamut from politics to sports to you know other types of entertainment. And it's funny because a lot of attention is given to kind of some of these more controversial issues. But if you look at what's really engaging people on the platform day to day, like some of the most engaging content is like music um, or sports. And that's really what keeps people engaged and it's their ability to have these conversations across a broad spectrum of communities. Um, of course, there's a lot of interest in politics, and that is definitely one aspect of the communities that we serve. But it's definitely not the only thing. Sure. Unfortunately, you're talking to a D.C. guy who does policy. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the politics side, but hopefully in a way that uh, will move the conversation forward. Right. So let me let me set the scene this way. A number of polls, I'm going to cite a Pew poll, but a number of polls have found, so the Pew poll says that 73% of those who were asked uh, said that social media companies like Twitter intentionally censor political viewpoints they find objectionable. Now, majorities in both parties believe this, but that's especially true and common amongst Republicans or independents who identify kind of leaning toward Republicans. Now, because I've been in these conversations for a while, Assuming that you would deny that Twitter censors content based on any kind of political ideology, why do you think that there's this bipartisan consensus that's taken hold and is even kind of growing? How do you kind of reconcile with that reality? Well, I think there's there's a bunch of different things going on. So again, I would point you to that this is a very a US-centric um, um, issue. And it's not to say we don't have this issue in other parts of the world, but this is a, one of the predominant places where we hear this. And I think a couple of things are going on, and, and Jack has talked about this, whether he's testified in front of Congress or in other forums, we haven't done the best job of being transparent about how our policies are enforced, um, what's happening in the in the background, like what's going on in terms of like how we review appeals and the like. So we have work to do, right? Transparency is key here. And I would say that like that hasn't been a huge area of investment for us in the past. So that's one piece of it. The second thing I think is a lot of a lot more education, right? Um, we probably don't do as much as we could within the product itself talking about our policies. And people may inadvertently trip on these things, right? Like they could share a video without realizing it's manipulated and they may trip on our policy there. So we have a lot of education to do. Um, and then lastly, I would say like the political situation in the United States is quite tense. Um, it is quite partisan. And so you're going to see like a lot of um, heated conversations in the political arena, maybe that you wouldn't otherwise. And, and the, the funny thing for me is like, I did not imagine like, give, look, look at misinformation as an example of this, um, you know, and I know I've seen some of some of your work on this, like COVID-19 misinformation policies where we're relying on the WHO or the CDC we're not intentionally trying to take a side. We're relying on the public health authorities that have put out information. Now, it doesn't mean it's the best information, and it doesn't mean that like it's not going to change. We've already seen examples of uh, public health authorities changing uh, their own advice, and you know us having to reflect that. 
But we also have been very clear that we're going to take action in this space because the people using Twitter have asked us to. And they've asked us to do this in a very particular way. Like when we've engaged in broad-based uh, you know, surveys of our, our, our user base, they've said like they don't think that we should be completely you know, not paying attention to misinformation. They actually like this idea of labeling and surfacing relevant content so that people can make their own decisions. And so we're, we're ending up getting involved in this space that has become political, even though our intention was not to like take a side in this debate. Yeah. So this perception of, so what you're describing uh, in one sense makes perfect sense to me in terms of uh, one, the scale of the challenge that, that Twitter has to deal with uh, the, the, the kind of global uh, dynamics uh, and, and certainly your, your description of the U S marketplace in terms of, it feeling very politicized and, and kind of intense, that all makes sense to me. Um, what I'm trying to understand a little bit better is, so within, within, the right, within the political right side of things, that perception of a kind of um, slanted or weighted enforcement of some of these uh, policies, it's like 85% uh, on, on the right who, who, who would say that this is happening. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've been honest in saying, look, we could have done a better job explaining this uh, and, and maybe they don't understand some of the rules that they're kind of tripping up on. Uh, OK, so what is it that this 85 percent of uh, kind of right leaning users, what is it that they don't understand? What are they what are what is it that you think they're just kind of fundamentally misjudging? Well, that, that's a good question. And I guess I would dive into the data if I had access to it. And I'd, I'd love to do that with you is looking at like, is this broad based perception or is this about certain types of policies like that? That would be curious to me. Like, is it um, related to misinformation specifically? Is it the COVID stuff that has is really um, forming the basis of that opinion? Is it about abuse and harassment? Like, you know, we've certainly had a lot of discussions around like um, hateful conduct and I'm trying to figure out like, what is it? Because the policy framework that we use on Twitter is pretty broad. It's not, and I think it would be hard to uh, generalize across all of those. So I think if yeah. you, if if we had more information about what people were seeing, is it everything or is it specific types of policies where they think that there is a disproportionate impact on one particular group? Yeah. Well, I mean, to the degree that that perception is driving people's, um, policy prescriptions and even the kind of the political will for, for politicians to take action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think what you, I think what you're saying is right. I think Twitter probably should understand that in a, in a more nuanced and detailed way because uh, it is shaping the public dialogue and it, it's going to be a variable that is going to shape your business. But okay. So on that though, one of the interesting things that we've uh, we've seen over the last <clears throat> couple of years is this very strange dynamic where you know, I talk about polling where there's a level of distrust and it's pretty broad based. At the same time, social media platforms particularly are enjoying record user numbers and profits. And so there's this weird dynamic where there's the signal potentially being sent to people such as yourself that trust isn't really all that important. As long as the numbers are climbing, you can kind of do whatever you want. And I'm not saying you've concluded that, but you can look at this dynamic and see how someone might conclude that. Oh, absolutely. And I, I'm, I'm quite sure that some people do conclude that. I'm not, I don't happen to be one of them. And, I, and the reason for that is because 
I think that that's a short-term view and we're trying to build a platform for the long-term. And so I think if you get, you know, too comfortable that like everything is fine, we're looking at this last quarter's revenue or this last quarter's usage, like you're, you're missing the bigger picture. Right. And to me, like this, there's, this is already in a space where you see robust competition that hopefully will only continue to increase um, based on the trends that we're seeing. And so long-term trust is going to matter. People aren't going to use your service if like they don't trust you and if they don't get in the information that they want. And so I think of it from that perspective, like that doesn't make me feel any better, I guess. So, I mean, simple, you know, but kind of frank question, does Twitter want conservative users? Absolutely. And 100%. what, how are you guys thinking about well, number one, do you feel compelled? Like, okay, look, we've clearly got a perception challenge here with with this particular demographic or this user group. What does it look like to engage them? How are you thinking about that? Yeah, and I think that this is this is where um, so much of um, you know the conversations Jack and I have had over the years is about transparency and just being a very very transparent product. And I, I would love to say that we've made progress there, but we haven't, and we need to do a better job there. That's one piece of it. I think the other piece of it is like we fight for and fight. We we advocate all the time for as many voices on the platform as possible. And we don't do that because we agree with everything. There's so much going on that we don't agree with or opinions that we don't agree with. But, you know, I personally come from the perspective that the more voices, the better. The sunlight is this great disinfectant. It shows what's going on in the world. And, you know, that the power of uh, expression or speech is one that we should all like treat with awe and respect. I do not want companies or governments having power over those things, right? Because these are fundamental human rights. And the more power you give to either corporations or governments, um, I think is a dangerous precedent for us to all set. And so I disagree with some of our peer companies that have taken the approach that like, hey, government acts, just tell us what you want us to do and we'll do it. Um, I, I, I think it's important that we have an open dialogue with governments, that we understand their concerns, we try to address them. But I also think like specific speech laws that give control on specific types of content are a dangerous precedent. And it's not something that I'm, I'm excited about. And I feel a lot of what you're seeing today, and this is a conversation I'd love to have, is because the internet is getting more and more controlled again. Like it's getting much more centralized again. And as that happens, it's going to force, I think, a pendulum swing back to decentralization. And this is like the future that we're planning for. And it's going to have its own challenges. I don't, I have no doubt. But I think like the more you try to control what people say, what people think, what people see, you're just going to force a more decentralized world again. Okay. So that's a great segue into this kind of next section, which is the kind of safety aspect of, of your job, right? So in terms of not wanting to control what people say or, or what they see and that kind of thing, which, you know, is easy to agree with. Um, all right. So big picture again, uh, let's talk about safety. What is your goal when it comes to user safety on Twitter, specifically safety from what? Yeah. So there's a couple of things that we're looking at here. One, when we think of, when we, we developed our policies, we did it with this concept of international human rights. Because again, we're a global platform. Most of the countries in the world that we operate have respect for some for certain fundamental rights. Those include free expression, free speech, um, a right to safety, mostly physical safety is what's contemplated there, and a right to privacy. So when we look at our rules, we're balancing those three things. 
where we're going to have much more aggressive enforcement is going to be on things that harm people's real world safety. So something like a violent threat, um, that's going to have a much harsher penalty in our rules than anything else. Um, you know, it's going to be like more of a one strike you're out. Like if you threaten to kill someone on Twitter, there's no warning there. Like we're, we're going to suspend your account. Um, and privacy is much more of a balance, right? Like there's going to be things like doxing, which is likely to lead to some sort of offline harm. We're going to have a much more aggressive approach than something that is not like tied to someone's real world safety. So those are the kind of balances we're talking about. I will say like as a platform, we have evolved over time. And I would say 15 years ago when Twitter first started, we didn't have a lot of rules around safety and how to engage online. And what we found was a lot of people were basically harassed off the internet. I mean, this is online harassment is not a new thing. And we saw it play out on Twitter, right? The same way it's played out everywhere else. And we found that, you know, a lot of voices and a lot of communities were just getting silenced online and on Twitter in particular. And so we have established some rules to help that balance. But those are not rules where like, you know, one strike you're out. These are going to be rules where we're trying to educate you we're trying to bring you along. And that's where I think we have to do more work is like understanding or providing that understanding so people people are aware when they're on that um, spectrum and what the consequences of that are going to be. You know, I, I think personally, like this is a really hard challenge for every company, content moderation. Um, I've said this before. It's almost impossible to do it perfectly or even that well. Um, there are so many humans involved. There's so much subjectivity involved. So I would like to find a world where we can do a better job of making sure we're protecting people, but that we're not constantly intervening in these one-off disputes between users. I don't know what that looks like yet, but it's it's something that we spend a lot of time internally thinking about, Like because I don't think content moderation, as we do it today, anywhere on the internet, is um, scalable or sustainable long-term. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the way that content moderation has evolved up to this point uh, probably doesn't work. And it, it actually begins, I think, to cut across um, at least partially what you've described as Twitter's primary objective of being this kind of place where conversation on the Internet occurs in a mm -hmm. kind of free and open way. So that, OK, I want to I want to dive into defining terms just a little bit more on the safety side. So. Um, when we talk about abuse online, we obviously understand, as you already mentioned, much of that definition, things like threats of violence, self-harm, all that kind of stuff. That's obviously something that should be engaged and, and, and thought about. But kind of linking back to the beginning of our conversation about perceptions, particularly on the right, um, the notion of abuse seems to also extend to conversations in the public square on Twitter, um, even to a person's identity. And it appears that Twitter thinks, and this is me doing a bit of interpretation here, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it appears as though Twitter believes that any language that would challenge or question a person's understanding of their own identity is inherently abusive. And um, I think where that is most clearly demonstrated, but not exclusively demonstrated, is in the public conversations around transgender uh, identity. And so all that to say, is it is it Twitter's view that to question or to challenge an individual's understanding of their own identity is by definition abusive? Or can that 
dialogue or debate happen in a non-abusive way? I think this is a great question. And this kind of goes to like what, what we have written down, the intention behind our policies, and then how it's enforced. And so what I would say is, yes, there, there are probably ways to have these conversations that are very civil and um, in good faith. Um, but we have rules in place to protect against the other side of that, right, which is um, attacks um, that are meant to abuse and harass particular people. And those rules don't come out of, um, they come out of user research. They come out of studies that show where offline harm is happening to certain communities and, um, you know, work with civil society groups to kind of craft a spectrum. Now, have we put the line in exactly the right place? Probably not. But I think that you, if you asked, people on either side of that line would say that we're not doing enough or we're doing too much. No matter who you talk to, you kind of end up. And so this is where I kind of go back to like, you know, we as a company have to make some judgment calls in this space. And we're trying to do the best we can. And I think we owe much more transparency around what those judgment calls are. But we have to make those calls. We, we have decided, for example, that, um, you know, in the misinformation space, we are going to focus on COVID-19 because we think that there is a public health emergency happening. Now, people disagree with that approach, but it's an approach as a company we've decided to take based on our own uh, surveys, based on our own mission. And customers are going to have to decide themselves if they're okay with that, right? And if, if that's part of the service that they want from us. And that's not to be cavalier. Like, I obviously want all voices on the platform. But I also think, like, we're also a company that's making judgment calls. And I want to be clear, like, that that is part of what we're trying to do here is build a product that, you know, appeals to the most people possible while it's also, like, you know, preventing harm from happening in the world. Yeah, I think one of the challenges you have is um, as a company who has to make judgment calls, you cl that's clearly true. Uh, I do think that there's a perception that there's a consistent um, lean to how those judgment calls are made, which, you know, first of all, I would say, yeah, you can do that, right? You're a private company. And I think most people actually feel that way. I think where to the degree that there's a rub is if there's a perception that, no, Twitter's trying to have it both ways. It's striking kind of a an ideologically neutral pose, but it's consistently interpreting, well, number one, determining its rules, interpreting those rules, and then enforcing those rules consistent with a particular ideological bent. And so, okay, that's all high in the sky. Let me make it a little more concrete. Yeah. You know, people just... Um... People assume it's like some a group of uh, people sitting in San Francisco <laughs> making these enforcement decisions. And, and the reality is just much broader than that, right? Like we have a global team of people and algorithms who are reviewing this content. And it, it is really hard like for any of us to even like try to be that like purposeful in any sort of significant way. So I, I hear you that that is the perception and we have some work to do to figure out how to, to change that. But like we don't it's funny to me because like one of the challenges that I find is actually like um, I like when we're trying to do content moderation in Afghanistan, like I don't, you know, or in India or in Indonesia or anywhere around the world. It's like, I don't, I have some number of people who know that market well and who, but that's not enough people to like do content moderation in that market. So it is the task of content moderation falls upon this broad group of general principles that are enforced globally by a very, very diverse group, often international, global 
um, agents around the world. So um, it, it is interesting that there's this perception that we're doing enforcement in a certain way in the United States, but it's really a global team that's doing this. Um, and that's why I, I point back to the policies and the transparency behind them and how we define enforcement guidelines, because if that's where people need to understand and look, because the actual enforcement, I actually don't, I don't believe that there is specific bias in that piece of it because of how we've set up our content moderation systems. Yeah, I think on a lot of the content moderation decisions that that makes I think that's a passable explanation on on most things. I think there are a couple of kind of cultural hot button issues that um, are very present in the in the public and political dialogue right now. And it's just I think it's unarguable to say that the rules surrounding those issues and how those rules are are kind of enforced are inescapable from certain kind of political pulls, right? Okay. So, um, and and again, I'm if if Twitter says, look, you know, we're just adopting this view and we're moving out from there because we have to make a decision. I think most people can they may disagree, but they they can at least understand that. I think the rub for a lot of people is to the degree that they perceive you as trying to strike a an ideologically neutral pose but then mm-hmm. operate that way is where they feel the the dissonance. Now, maybe you say, well, yeah, Klon, that's actually part of the communication problem that I was talking about that we need to do a better job on. I, I think there is some aspect of that. I mean, you know, there are definitely parts of our policies that some people would say are ideological that we view as just fundamental human rights, you know, like hate speech or, or whatever. So, And that's clearly know. a moral judgment, right? I mean, right. like how you define that? I don't, I don't think of that as a political issue personally, but like there might be some people who do. Sure. Well, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, look, a lot of life is political. That doesn't mean it has to be, you know, gross, uh, although a lot of it is. Um, it just means that like to the degree. So when you make an assertion, when someone makes an assertion about human rights, um, that's obviously loaded with um kind of moral freight, right? It implies mm-hmm. something. So for example, if yeah. you say this is a fundamental human right and I disagree with you, that automatically puts me in the position of being against a fundamental human right. Yeah. Whereas we may actually be disagreeing about, well, okay, fine, but what's the state's role in securing that right? Or how does Twitter think about what I can say about that thing? It just, and especially to the degree that you are creating and you are and have a an internet place for dialogue dialogue obviously requires and enables debate. And so I think there are a, a, a healthy portion of, we'll just say your U.S. users, who feel like that conversation is, and that debate is is kind of one-sided and that they just, essentially, I think they just want Twitter to say, yeah, on this issue, or on that issue, this is kind of where we are and these are the rules we're, we're going to put in place. Yeah, that's good feedback. I think, uh, you know, that resonates with me. I think us being really clear about where we're drawing those lines and why and, you know, leaving it with uh, folks to make their own decision of whether they agree with that or not and not trying to say like, well, this is obvious, like this is where everyone is, is probably is definitely like, I think a more trustworthy approach long term. Yeah. Okay. Great. Well, we fixed it. That's awesome. <laughs> the devil um, is in the details, as you know. That's right. That's, I do. Yeah, that's right. Exactly right. Okay, so uh, let's uh, keep on the policy side of things a little bit. Uh, what is Twitter's world leaders policy? 
Well, uh, you may know that we actually have been in the process of updating that policy. We put it out for public comment a few months ago, and we got about 49,000 responses. So we're, we're digesting that. Um, you know, in the past, what we have said is that world leaders have an outsized impact on the public conversation, um, that in uh, other than in limited circumstances, that we would keep their content, content on the platform. Um, and in some cases, we might interstitial it, but only in very extreme cases would we remove that content. We've gotten a lot of feedback on that, as you can imagine, not just in the case of, um, you know, what, what happened with President Trump's account, but other world leaders who we take an action on that have resulted in, in various um, other consequences globally. So we're, we're really you know, digging in and understanding what our user base wants us to do here and um, trying to do that work in public again. Uh, I think that we're probably one of the you know, only large platforms that actually opens up our policies for public comment. That's not to say we can listen to everybody, obviously, but we're trying to, again, learn and make sure that we're doing this in a way that has viewpoints that we may not have seen ourselves. Um, and I think in, in this particular case, um, it's interesting because it is very geographic specific. How people want us to deal with world leaders in the United States is very different than how they want us to deal with it in other parts of the world. And I can't have different policies. Obviously, as a company, a global platform, we can't have different policies. Well, if you're a world leader here, you get to do this. But, you know, in this other part of the world, you can't. So we're, we're trying to find the right balance of that, of um, respecting our global user base and trying to come up with some policy that allows world leaders to be on the platform, allows them to be held accountable, but doesn't give them so much um, leeway, maybe that we have had in the past in terms of uh, violating our policies. So I think, yeah, I think it would be strange if you had geographic referenced rules that that wouldn't make a lot of sense. But why not? prioritize or give greater leeway to, uh, you know, leaders of democratic governments, vice autocratic governments? Um, why, why not have kind of different rules of the road? Like, hey, if you want to be a democratic organization that's leading or leader who's leading a representative government, you know, you get you get privileges. But if you're an autocratic jerk, then yeah, not so much. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly one way to do it. I think, again, you'd find people disagreed on your definitions. Um, and I think that we'd end up arguing, uh, you know, who belonged in which category. I'm not sure it's that simple. And, you know, if, if I look back on to some of the higher themes that came across in the feedback is generally people, regardless of geography, felt like world leaders shouldn't like get to play above the rules. Right. Like in general, they felt like they're people they're using these private you know, services they should abide by the same set of rules as everybody else. That's kind of the general tenor of the feedback. Um, so in that sense, like, I don't, I don't think that our users want us to necessarily do that. Which just, by the way, is a very American perspective on leadership, right? Like, no, no, don't give these folks more than the rest of us. They're just one of us. Yeah. Okay. So more practically then. Okay. So what is Twitter going to do in terms of recognizing or otherwise allowing Taliban members of the Taliban government to operate on the platform? Well, it's a super dynamic situation, as you can imagine, Klan. We're we're really closely following the situation. Um, you know, we're making sure we're enforcing our rules, whether it's glorification of violence or incitement of violence. We're going to be looking to the international community. What are they going to be doing? This is, I mean, we're, we're an afterthought in all of this, right? Like, this is really about like how is the world going to recognize uh, this government or this this group 
And I, I think like that is something that is, you know, top of mind for us is looking to the international community on this. So you guys haven't made a judgment at this point. We have not made a judgment at this point. Um, and we're, again, we're going to be looking at the international community and looking at the facts on the ground. We're working really, really closely with our civil society partners on the ground who work with uh, minority groups or, or women on the ground and making sure that we're doing whatever we can to protect people. As, as you know, uh, there's been a lot of um, concern about digital accounts uh, for a lot of people in Afghanistan and um, the capability of wiping away their online presence, their affiliations, et cetera. So we're trying to be as supportive as we can to protect people in that context. And then in terms of like the broader strategy in Afghanistan, we're looking to the international community and um, you know whatever signals we're going to get from them, from the U.S. government, et cetera, in terms of what's going to happen in terms of recognition. Uh, just out of curiosity, uh, did anyone from the Biden administration reach out to you guys prior to the U.S. withdrawal to coordinate on securing Afghan users' data? I am. I don't know. I, I'm not sure that I would be their first point of contact. So I, I honestly just don't know. I'd have to ask my team. Okay. Uh, why do you think Chinese officials or the supreme leader of Iran even want to be on Twitter? What, what is what? Do, why do you think they want that? Probably to manage an image or to um, spread, you know, information or share perspective. Any of those things. Why? Why are most people on social media? Well, I know, but, but those those officials. I mean, I would. I think it's true that they would have a particular uh, purpose. So, is is Twitter in China or in Iran? Our service is blocked in both of those countries. That's right. Okay. So, is it reasonable to assume that those officials from those companies would primarily be focusing on an outside audience when they engage on your platform? Uh, yes. Although I w- I would say that it, it would be a mistake to assume that we don't have. Uh, individuals from within those countries using our service through uh, VPN or other means. But yes, my guess is that their audience is either some form of diplomacy or some sort of, uh, you know, other type of thing. Well, one of the things that's been interesting about, um, about that has also been how other people react to them on the platform, um, whether it's an elected official or not. Um, You know, we've definitely seen, uh, you know, in the past, um, interesting conversations between world leaders mm-hmm. on the platform. Um, we saw this in the case um, a couple of years ago between some of the Iranian leaders and some of the U.S. leaders. So um, that's also been an interesting thing to follow. So as an organization, how do you draw the line or, or how do you even think about, um, you know, uh, when when, you know, Chinese official X is uh, out um, communicating or promoting what I think we would all agree is is disinformation intended to shape a narrative about the Chinese government uh, where, hey, you know what, that may be wrong, but it's provoking an interesting public dialogue and conversation versus, um, no, that misinformation is actually going to um, mislead uh, a large portion of our user base on issues that you've already made a determination you're not going to allow for. So things like COVID and, and things like that. How do you, how do you think about that line? Yeah, a couple of things there. I would say one, you know, for, for some period of time, and I, we can find out and get you the dates. We've been labeling a lot of the government accounts to be very clear that, the, you know, this represents the government of a particular country. So people have that information. We do the same thing on state media. 
Um, so if it's a media organization that is controlled by a particular um, government, we label that again to provide people on Twitter perspective on like that there's a viewpoint being advocated here and you should be aware of where that viewpoint is coming from. The second thing I would say in response is like we enforce our policies against those accounts. So for example, a COVID-19 misinformation policy would get enforced on any of these accounts as we've done in the United States and, and Brazil and in any number of other countries, we've enforced misinformation policies against um, you know leaders, whether democratically elected or not. Um, and we'll continue to do that. So in that sense, like they are going to, they are subject to the same rules. They're getting the same enforcement um, than anyone else is and the same type of label. And we're actually increased transparency through additional types of labeling. So Bloomberg ran a story asserting that Twitter trained Chinese officials on how to better use the platform. And we've clearly seen a surge in Chinese accounts on Twitter. I guess I would just ask, did Twitter do this? And if so, why? train Chinese officials on how to better use the platform. Mm-hmm. I, th- that is not something I'm aware of. Um, what I would say is we have uh, obviously, and you can find this on our website, like how to create a Twitter account, how to tweet to get the most engagement audience. So there's that kind of general level of like baseline, how to use Twitter um, mm-hmm. information that's available. Um, and, you know, the other piece of this that I would point all of you to is the work that we're doing on Project Sunlight. I don't know how familiar you are with it, Klan, but uh, starting about, I guess, four years ago, when we started discovering kind of these state, these state-backed platform manipulation operations, which is the use of fake accounts and networks and bots to kind of deliberately manipulate the conversation on Twitter, um, we actually decided that we were just going to post those accounts um, in a database, open it up to researchers, um, and we are doing the attribution. And that's one more way that we're trying to point some sunlight here to show like what what are the types of things that we're discovering. And when we see these state-backed um, you know operations happening on the platform, we're taking action on them right away. We're providing researchers with that information. We're giving it to journalists. We're talking about it publicly. And I think that that's one step further than you'll you'll find in the industry from any of our other peers. Yeah, I think the Bloomberg article caught my attention just because it, it would seemingly sidestep that effort. So it wasn't um, it wasn't asserting that you know they were being enabled to do wide scale disinformation campaigns from a you know like inauthentic accounts or bot accounts things like that. It was simply saying that uh, that Chinese public diplomacy officials and government officials had received additional training on how to just kind of squeeze more utility out of the platform and. You know, I have a very particular perspective, right? I work on national security. I'm, uh, I think it's fair to call me a China hawk. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I know you're a global company, but I think you're an American company. You're certainly headquartered in the United States. And um, the idea that uh, assistance would be provided to a, uh, an increasingly hostile government uh, to enable them to better... Um, challenge or contest American interests. Um, I found that pretty disturbing. And so I just wanted to ask you if it was true. Yeah, I'm not aware of this. Like we do not provide trainings to Chinese government officials on like how to like conduct their operations on Twitter or anything like that. So like that, that I would love if you could share that article. I think I remember seeing it. It's a couple of years ago though, right? Not, it wasn't. Uh, Yeah. No, I think, I think two years ago. Okay. Okay. Uh, 
I, I'm not aware of that. Um, and again, I would point to the work that we're doing on the other side of that, which is actually shining a light on when we discover people manipulating the platform. Um, and, you know, I, I think we've been very clear as a company that we will not do what would be required of us to operate in a country like China. Like that is a position that we have taken. We haven't spent the last 15 years trying to get unblocked in China because we know that what it would require of us, both in terms of uh, censoring speech as well as turning over information about users would be things that we would be unwilling to do as a company based on our values and based on the values of, you know, uh, you know, countries where we operate like the United States. So we've been very clear about that and we'll continue to, to defend our values in that way and make sure that like we're very cognizant of, of how different governments are approaching us and using our platform. Um, you know, this is obviously like a very complicated space, all of these dynamics between all of these governments, the conversations that they're having online. Um, like this is, this is, you know, not something that we take lightly, but again, we view ourselves as providing this conversation layer for the internet and we try to, we, we intervene, but only in instances where we can see demonstrable harm, particularly physical harm to people. Okay. And that's an excellent bridge to the kind of final part of our conversation to this idea of um, on the, on the, on the legal side. So um, just a straight up question on this, why does Twitter allow porn on its platform? And, how do you verify that this material doesn't include things like revenge porn or child sexual exploitation material? Yeah, so we have um, policies in place that are zero, zero tolerance for child sexual exploitation materials, as well as um, non-consensual nudity. We have special reporting mechanisms in place. We have uh, special partnerships in place. We report any, uh, we obviously work with NCMEC very closely. We have um, things like photo DNA that we use to proactively screen for content that has already been flagged as uh, CSE imagery. So we're definitely very focused on this. And this is something that I would say, like, again, zero tolerance. If, if we know that this is CSAM material or CSE material, this not only gets removed right away, it gets stopped from spreading, but it also gets immediately reported to NCMEC. Um, so that, that is a, a big focus of ours. And what I would say with respect to um, why we allow this, like this is not illegal content in the United States. And so there is going to be a certain amount of this content that exists. But what we are trying to do is do it in a way that's responsible, make sure we're protecting children, make sure we're protecting victims of trafficking and also give users control. So we have safety search um, you, you can reduce sensitive imagery that shows up in your feed, all of those kind of things. So we're trying to do it in a very responsible way that protects the safety of those vulnerable groups. Uh, so I'm just going to double click on this one point. You mentioned that um, pornography is not illegal. Certainly that is true if we're talking about legal pornography, not the stuff that we, you know, we were just explaining. But there's lots of content that's legal that Twitter still makes the decision not to host on its, on its platform in terms of speech and otherwise. So what's the, what's the, benefit that Twitter thinks is accrued by allowing even just legal pornography on its platform? I guess, again, when when you think of our rules generally and you go back to what we're trying to do, we're trying to prevent harm, um, focusing on harm to privacy, harm to physical safety, and that kind of thing. And even our rules preventing you know, CSC, non-consensual pornography, those are all rooted around harm that's happening in the real world. So we are going to intervene in those places where we see that harm potential. And that's not to say that like there's no harm that comes out of other 
types of content, whether it's pornography of others, but that's that's the position that we've taken in terms of how we think of this uh, framework around our content. Okay. The, the, the last point I'll make on, on that is that I think, you know, you've on, on multiple occasions, you've cited different studies and, and, and research that you guys have done. I think the the research in terms of the connection between the general pornography trade and human sex trafficking and just broader individual harm, it's pretty well established. I don't know many people who, who would debate that. And I would encourage Twitter to reconsider the, the, um, the relative value of allowing that content on its platform certainly can, um, but it seems to me to perhaps be in conflict with some of the broader aims that, that you've outlined here. Um, yeah. oh, okay, so obviously listen. a robust debate right now in in uh, the social world. So that's right, that's right. Well, Vijay, you've been great. I hope this was um, something that was helpful to you and that you were able to enjoy. And uh, thank you for taking the time. And we will call it there. Great. Thanks, Klon. Really nice to talk. Appreciate it. So there you have it. Uh, my conversation with Vijaya was uh, very interesting, and I really appreciate her willingness to spend some time with me and, and have the conversation that we had. I'm not under the impression that this conversation is going to decisively change any of the dynamics around Twitter or civil society, and certainly there are going to be some listening to this who wish I would have asked her uh, more specific content moderation uh, issues or, or about public statements that she or other Twitter personnel have, have made. But honestly, uh, I wasn't particularly interested in going into those details simply because those conversations have been had a thousand times. They rarely get resolved in a satisfactory manner, and I'm hard-pressed to show any benefit that they've produced. Um, I wanted instead to focus on what the company is trying to do and to assess for myself their self-awareness on how they are being perceived and even how their actions are feeding into that perception. Here are a couple of thoughts uh, that I have at the end of this conversation. One, Twitter is aware that it is not communicating or educating adequately with regard to its role in American politics. At the same time, it seems, though, to want the benefit of the doubt in terms of decisions that it's making on moderation issues uh, and for an understanding by the public of its scale and the challenge that that presents. But we don't typically extend that type of benefit of the doubt to companies uh, with the level of influence that Twitter has. Uh, in fact, public trust... Uh, when you're something like Twitter, has to be earned every single day and maintained. And I think it's inarguable that Twitter is failing to win and hold that trust. Uh, I would like to see them think more carefully uh, about what they're going to do in getting that trust. I was also left a little surprised at the lack of response as it regards Twitter's stance on foreign policy. And Particularly the idea of training officials, um, that to me seems like something that there's an answer for, um, training Chinese officials that is, uh, and the motivation and risks of having Chinese and Iranian officials deliberately using their platform as a way of propagating propaganda and disinformation, which is something that Twitter has identified as being something that they want to prevent. Um, 
Yeah, so I think that's an area where they need to do a better job of explaining themselves and of capturing uh, how they're going to go forward in a way uh, that is sustainable and uh, rational. Finally, there is obviously a strong bipartisan concern about the biases that platforms like Twitter demonstrate in the way that they do content moderation and their broader policy choices. Some of this is unavoidable, and um, you know there are a lot of users out there who will claim bias simply because they don't like a rule. Uh, and that does not mean that the enforcement of that rule is inherently biased. At the same time, there is enough of a concern and a demonstrated, what I'll call, worldview bent in the development and um, execution of these rules that whether they intend it or not, the overwhelming majority of Americans believe its operation uh, is defining how things go on Twitter. And Twitter has worked very hard to be as influential as it is. And if they want to wield the level of influence that they have garnered responsibly, uh, they do need to do a better job of understanding the nuances of their public perceptions about the company and of being able to demonstrate coherently that the choices they are making um, are uh, in line with their uh, rules, number one, and to their stated worldview. Sometimes that's going to mean explaining very clearly what their worldview is and just owning up to that. Because the American user and users more generally are sophisticated enough to understand when that's happening. And oftentimes the only people that are being fooled by social media companies pretending to be ideologically neutral are the companies themselves. Everyone else is in on the game. That being said, what I am most appreciative uh, about this time with Vigia is that uh, she came on, we had an honest conversation, and we were able to do so in a way where we didn't pretend like the other was a comic book villain, but we were honest, we were transparent, we acknowledged, I think, places where there are real disagreements, uh, and I would hope that these types of conversations uh, could be more prevalent in the, the public policy debate around technology and social media. It was a real pleasure. Again, uh, thank you to Vidya and the Twitter team for taking the time. And I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. I look forward to talking to you again.